Hey everyone, welcome to another edition of the Wallet for Your podcast. My name is Matt Wasowski. I want to introduce this episode by letting you know that we're going to be talking to a woman who works at a nonprofit organization in Austin, Texas, and the episode will look at a couple of things, most notably how the cost of living in an increasingly expensive city can be so tricky to navigate, and also how income inequality within her own office led to important realizations and a covert mission of uncovering the salaries of her own co-workers. Enjoy. My name is Amy Cavender, and I'm in Austin, Texas, and I work as a program manager at a healthcare-related nonprofit, and I make right around $54,100 a year. And besides uh, probably your immediate supervisor and maybe an HR person, how many other people know that you make $54,100 a year? Mm, Probably about three or four. Who would you think those three or four people are? Uh, someone that I bank with and uh, someone who just recently ran a housing application for me and a friend of mine that I'm talking about buying a house with in the next few years. So that's two officially bank people and one friend. Um, what was it like having that conversation with your friend? Um, it's, it's a little funny because um, I told her what I made and uh, she said, oh my God, I feel so bad. And I was like, why is that? She's like, well, I make around what you do and you're much more educated than I am. And I was like, (laughs) well, life is choices. (laughs) I've chosen to work for nonprofits for most of my life. And my friend works at a a corporation and she has, she started out as like a frontline person and now she's a, a manager there. So she did a corporate route. So she got a lot of education. It was just in her workplace. Sure. What, what kind of uh, corporation does she work at? She works in insurance. So do you think that's a common theory or is that just an assumption or something that your friend had in mind where there is somehow supposed to be a direct correlation between income and education? I think that's a pretty common assumption, but she really values education. She's, she has not had a chance to complete the level of education she'd like. And so I think it kind of surprised her that we were making around the same amount of money. I've gotten a great deal of education, but mine was all kind of like touchy-feely liberal art stuff, and I didn't really expect to make money from it. Sure, sure. Can you, so can you just really quickly talk about uh, the various levels of your touchy-feely liberal arts education? <laughs> sure. Um, I have a psychology bachelor's degree, and then I have a master's degree in counseling with a focus on university administration. So obviously you went in for, uh, for the money. Yes, yes. Higher education is definitely where the big bucks are at, um, for sure. I'm very good at picking lucrative fields. <laughs> you're, you're, you're on a great track. Yeah. The last few years, Austin, Texas has sort of been going through a boom. And I, I believe that housing prices, for example, have kind of grown exponentially in the last five or 10 years. Can you talk a little bit about what your current living situation is like? And then with your friend, what kind of house you may or apartment you may be able to afford? Well, sure. So right now I'm living with some people, but this is actually an interesting time to talk because um, I'm going to be moving at the end of the month. And at least some of that is dictated by us having kind of different ideas of how to manage our risk for COVID-19. 
Um, elaborate on that. Um, we just have different risk tolerances and uh, some things that I do, they think are crazy and some things that they do, I'm like, why would you do that? So <laughs> I don't think any of us is wrong. Uh, I just think it doesn't match, ma ma match up. So, you know. Got it. I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. That sounds very frustrating and sad. I'm, I'm trying not to think of it as, as being like a, a sad or a bad thing. It's just sometimes you know, who could have foreseen this? Everything right. was fine. And then different risk tolerances are, you know, it wouldn't have come into play if a once in a lifetime, hopefully global right. pandemic hadn't emerged. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Not, not going to work hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. My wife and I, we, we've been on the extreme, extreme, extreme end of the cautious spectrum. And I think a lot of people think we're nuts too. So if that's, that means, if that helps all, um, yeah, I'm, I'm with, I'm right there with you. <laughs> You mentioned the email to me that you have some other thoughts on uh, sort of a need for or interest in salary transparency. Can you expand on that a little bit more? Absolutely. Um, I have, I have a, a deep-seated belief that the norm around wage secrecy is not beneficial to anybody except for the people that set the wages. And uh, I think that it is often used to fool people into thinking that they're being fairly compensated when they aren't. And uh, I lived through an example of this a few years ago. After I had finished my master's degree, I had gone to work for a large organization. And uh, there was a, a woman I worked with who um, in almost every meaningful sense was my peer and my, my equal. And we often did projects together and we were on the same kind of committees and we showed up at the same places to support the same students and did all the things. And um, I remember her saying something about how hard it was for her to, basically it was really hard for her to pay her bills. And we were both living and working in an inexpensive city and I was really kind of wondering how that was. And so I was just like, well, I mean, you know, are you withholding too much for your retirement or, you know, what's, what's going on? Do you need to, you know, refocus your budget or like, do you need, you know, can I loan you some money? And it, it came to pass that even though we were at the same level in a lot of ways, we had the same expectations. She was working in a different division and she was being paid about 60% of what I was being paid. Wow. That, that's a big difference. Yes, it was. And, um, and I was, I was furious for her and she had a lot of feelings as well. And we started making some quiet inquiries with other people that were perceived to be our peers. And I was being paid about market and she was definitely being paid less. I think there were a lot of different reasons why that came to pass, but the fact that it felt like some kind of clandestine operation for us to find out what our peers were making from them and it felt kind of dirty or kind of naughty. It was very strange to me because when you go into a grocery store and you pick up an apple, you can see how much the apple is going to be. You can put it on a scale, maybe another apple weighs a little bit more and you're buying it by weight, but you can still kind of have some, you know, relative standard that you're looking at when you're making a purchase. And if you consider a salary to be a purchase of labor, then if you have two apples worth of labor, then they should be roughly, roughly equivalent in value. 
Sure. So can you talk a little bit about why it felt naughty to sort of do that detective work with your other coworkers then to kind of get a general sense of the overall pay scale? And yeah, just to share a little bit about what those conversations were like. Well, I think part of the reason it felt naughty was because we all buy into the same, or we all, I shouldn't assume for everybody, but I think a lot of people buy into the assumption that it's tacky to talk about money. Uh, turns out it's not. It's necessary uh, to talk about money because that's the only way you're going to have a shot of making sure you're treated fairly and lifting up people who are doing the same kind of work as you are and aren't being treated fairly. And and I think that that, that taboo, that that kind of almost patrician assumption of like, we don't, we don't bother ourselves with money. That's so. It's, it's so gauche and tacky. Yeah. Yes. Very few people I know are of the, you know, kind of idle rich class. Most people I know work and some people have lifted themselves up out of difficult economic circumstances and other people have lowered themselves down into difficulty because they didn't know how to manage money. Some people got sick having money or not having money isn't really a character issue. Sometimes it's a matter of skills. Sometimes it's a matter of circumstance. And yet somehow we've been fooled into thinking it's a matter of merit and moral value. Yeah. So can you talk a little, I I like what you just said. uh, I think the term you just said was character issue. Can you expand a little on that? Some other conversations I've had, people have sort of equated money to be on par with politics and religion and sometimes sex in terms of what you should or should not talk about. I've taken the stance, I think, that politics and religion, no matter where you fall on any of those scales, that sort of helps define who a person is in your sort of core set of beliefs and values. But I don't think money does that at all because I think money is much more circumstantial. Um, Can you talk about how you feel in regard to that and in terms of how money defines or does not define one's character? Well, sure. I think that money is something that especially when you're a young person, if you're growing up in a family that has money, if you get spoken to about it, then it's probably in terms of investments or in terms of like, this is planning for the future and this and that. And, and those, those conversations have some values imbued in them because you're thinking about the future. You might be denying yourself something now and all this kind of stuff and and those things are all considered to be part of a package of values and perspectives that um, happen to map really nicely onto the whole white anglo-saxon protestant value system thing and that's considered to be like the way but not everybody has those opportunities to look forward not everybody has those opportunities to plan ahead because sometimes they're in this this you know just they have to be in a reactive posture because their environment's so dynamic and or even if they started out having these kind of particular sets of values that were the ideals and the expectations one cancer diagnosis or one really bad car accident or a divorce and all those beliefs and expectations go out the window. They're just not practical anymore. And you contrast that with a family where, um, for example, there's always been a sick parent or it was always a single parent household or whatever. And they had more immediate concerns that had to be addressed and they have to deal with now because now it demands attention. 
you can't necessarily have this same level of complex planning and deferment of small pleasures for larger pleasures later because that's just not pragmatic. It sounds it sounds like it's pragmatic, but it's not because you've got to pay the rent, you've got to get the food, you've got to deal with what's happening right now, and you can't think that far ahead. And right. Not, so you basically like, just have to keep laser focused on the immediate practical situation, and you can't really look beyond that. Right. Well, right. And and that's the thing. You might want to. You might wish you could. It's not because you don't understand the value of saving for education or saving for this, you know, this or that or the other thing. It's just that you cannot. And somehow necessity of reacting to what's happening has become viewed as irresponsibility. When you were growing up, um, were you, how, how were you taught or were you taught at all about how to think about finance? Were you taught about budgeting or credit cards or debt? Talk a little bit about that. I was not really taught a lot. A lot of what I have learned, I have learned on my own as an adult. Um, my, my maternal grandmother was very deeply involved in my life and she went through the Great Depression but she also really liked nice things. So she had this kind of interesting paradox going on because uh, she would save lots of weird, you know, like jars, save a lot of jars, save a lot of bundles of paper and stuff. But she also had like really nice china, really nice glassware. And so she, she informed a lot of my values around that because she would want me to save and she would give me rolls of dimes. Like when she would go shopping and stuff, she would roll up her dimes and that was what went into my savings account. She'd give those to me every time I went to go visit. She'd give me a couple of rolls of dimes. But she also always bought me new stuff uh, for school and whatever. And it was so interesting because she had this thing about, you don't have to have the best thing, but you have to have a good thing. It, that, that was... That was more about how to spend and how to save. It, I didn't really get a lot of conversation from anybody about how to invest. And I didn't really get a lot of conversation from anybody about credit cards. And I pulled the classic uh, error of getting a college credit card and just doing some real damage to my finances with it uh, in my late teens, early 20s, and then got out of that. But it took some doing. Um, I'm glad you got out of it. That's a, that's a classic move, unfortunately. Uh-huh. Yes, it is. Yeah. Uh, that free t-shirt will get you. <laughs> it's a free t-shirt and it's packaged really small and interestingly and it's irresistible. Yeah. And so, so I had to kind of learn, learn my own lessons on that, but I still keep my spare change and I deposit it at the credit union every now and again. And that goes in my savings account. So Mimi did get me to stick to that. Have you noticed the sort of general, has there been any kind of shift at all now that Austin is becoming a sort of wealthier place? Um, is that kind of changing either how you think about money or have you noticed a sort of different mindset, generally speaking, in that part of the apartheid? Yes, it's gotten, uh, you know, at this point, the only reason I live here is because this is, I really enjoy my job right now and this is the only place I can do it. but it's very hard to have uh, an enjoyable, secure standard of living here. Part of that's probably the fact that I'm a single person by myself on a single income. But also, I mean, even if I was coupled up with somebody, the housing is wild. And uh, the way that property taxes work here 
is really quite something. Uh, since we don't have a state income tax, a lot of the state's income and the county's income is uh, basically from property taxes and sales taxes, and it's it is something else. Even I, I used to own a home here. I used to have a little condo, and it was 800 square feet, and then like 12.5 percent of the common area of the building. And my property taxes on this 800 square foot condo were the same as my mom's 22 acre ranchette. Yeah, and this was this was back in like you know the the early 2000s. So it has only gotten worse since then. But it, that's that's kind of the situation in Austin is that the uh, property tax base alone is just bonkers. And I'm not sure that it even makes sense to buy here. I've actually been kind of plotting and scheming to buy in another county because. I need to research this to make sure this is actually true, but it's my understanding that um, once you hit 65, whatever your property taxes, like whatever your property tax level is uh, at your homestead is your property tax basis for the rest of your life. And so I kind of want to buy somewhere else, establish my homestead. And then when I hit retirement age, move back here, <laughs> buy a little, a little condo that's in a convenient place. And then just, uh, you know, Live to 120. Exactly, exactly. Get my money back. Gosh darn it. That's the best way uh, to do it. That'll, that'll show. That's them. right. <laughs> but it's it's really something here, and uh, I wish that it was more affordable, uh, but it's not. Look, all right. I think that's it, unless there's anything I'm missing. Was this scary or terrifying at all? No, actually. And it was kind of fun to think about my Mimi again. So. <laughs> Actually, I liked what you said about her in terms of the paradox of sort of being a Depression-era child, but also liking nice things. That's, uh, that's a nice image. Yeah, she was, she was a character. Cool. All right, that's it. Easy. You're off the hook.